Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Dr. Sanam Bakil. She is Chatham House's deputy director of the MENA program, where she leads the Future Dynamics in the Gulf Project and the Iran Forum. Sanam's research focuses on regional security, Gulf geopolitics, and on future trends in Iran's domestic and foreign policy. She and her Chatham House colleague, Neil Quilliam, are publishing a research paper in mid-April. It's titled, Steps to Enable a Middle East Security Process, Reviving the JCPOA, De-Escalating Conflicts, and Building Trust. Herb Digest has had a sneak preview, and the study is the focus of our conversation today. Sanam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. And good to have you. Now, now look, your paper uh, points out that there are those who argue, just let the region sort out the myriad of messes in which it finds itself. It's, you call it the do-nothing approach. But you also say that would come at a high cost. What are those costs? It's a good question, um, and I think a conundrum for a lot of policymakers. Uh, one thing that we found um, when we conducted our research, uh, which was interview-based, was um, that there is a real sense of Middle East fatigue among policymakers, and that really concerns us. Um, so we see that the, uh, the costs of doing nothing are letting the status quo prevail, where there are multiple conflicts, continuing uh, for years um, in the region, be that the war in Syria, the war in Yemen, conflict in Libya, which looks like it's been tempered for the time being, uh, alongside um, crises of governance, increasing cleavages uh, between elites and ordinary people. We see um, that these are high costs for everybody in the region to bear. Costs for the elites and and, um, the uh, policymakers at the top and for states that are risking failure in executing policy. In certain cases, like the Lebanese one, state failure, um, should they uh, not arrive at a new government, let alone providing important uh, new economic policies to attend to the needs of ordinary citizens. We see the Syrian war as a really good example of having uh, not just, you know, deeply devastated Syrian society, but also um, the the conflict spread uh, beyond Syria throughout the region, also impacted European countries. So, you know, that's another cost that's worthwhile considering. We're seeing increasing trends of um, arms proliferation, an arms race, if you will, and, you know, sort of add to that the growing trend of what appears to be a U.S. disengagement uh, from the Middle East, um, where, you know, they're not physically leaving uh, per se, but uh, the U.S. is prioritizing domestic challenges in the United States, geopolitical challenges vis-a-vis China, and um, the persistent demand of conflict management in the Middle East is no longer um, at the top of U.S. national security interests. So, you know, take all of these issues together and the cost of the status quo looks increasingly dangerous, I think, for Middle Eastern states and above all for ordinary citizens. Yes, and I suppose in the, the what's in it for me argument, Europe has got to consider what failed states in the Middle East mean for them? 
Absolutely. Um, we've seen the impact of the Syrian war, um, also the war in Libya, as you know, directly impacting Europe with uh, migration and the emergence of free refugees that have also had an impact on uh, domestic politics in, in European countries, not for the better, mind you. But uh, th these are issues that Europe has to consider and contend with. And I think that the Middle East is closer to Europe than it ever has been. And so European security it can be really impacted by the Middle East and instability in the Middle East. So there is, I think, a vested interest for Europe to uh, step forward and uh, engage in multilateral conflict management. Yeah, and just to make a further point on Europe, and I think you touched on it, that the, the rise of this hard right nationalism, much of it driven by the migrant uh, issue. Yes, and we've seen a backlash, you know, I think very uh, prominently in, in France and in Germany, but also here in the UK with Brexit. Um, you know, I think that's deeply connected to politics around immigration and uh, indigenous nationalism. So I think that, you know, you can make an argument that, that Europe has uh, national interests uh, you know, that are connected to Middle East security and protecting, protecting against state failure requires European governments to invest in good governance in the Middle East. Um, and I think that, you know, this is something that we, it is a lofty ambition, no less, but something that we are arguing for. If the Middle East is going to become a more stable place, multilateral international investment is needed to help the region get there. Mm. Now, you and Neil talk about the trust deficit, and it is huge, isn't it? There's between countries in the region, within countries, between various communities and various sects, and between the big outside players who are engaged at, at varying levels in the region. Can you talk about this trust deficit and how big a challenge it is to achieving regional security. Yes, it's it's monumental, um, I think. Um, and I think it's probably the biggest hurdle to overcome um, because the lack of trust has become sedimented uh, in many cases where states don't have direct diplomatic relationships, or let alone conversations. Um, with each other, political leaders have no contact, there is no mechanism to manage conflicts, to discuss issues, to de-escalate. And of course, that impacts ordinary citizens yet again. You have communities um, that have been marginalized, um, like the Yazidis, for example, in Iraq, who have deep distrust for Sunni communities as well. So there's got to be significant work done in rebuilding trust. And, and to me, this is you know, more than a generational project um, that, that needs to be taken and very hard to implement in a quick, uh, quick manner. Also, for example, if you look at the Qatar crisis that was underway from uh, 2017 and, and was resolved formally in January of this year, a huge trust um, deficit uh, was exposed between uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain and Egypt, the, the countries that imposed the blockade on Qatar. And I think that um, to rebuild that will take 
many rounds of dialogue and mutual concessions and mutual investment in, again, building some sort of conflict de-escalation mechanism for the future. Yeah, and of course, there is that other issue, uh, which is that the governed and those who govern them, there is just a huge disconnect, a huge trust deficit there in many of the Middle East countries. I mean, I think about Lebanon, I think about Jordan, I think about uh, Iraq, uh, Egypt. You know, you can run through the list and, and, and there is this huge disconnect, isn't there? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because, yes, the trust is not just at the state level. It is between the governed um, and the governing. And we have seen protests, um, obviously, ongoing since the 2011 Arab Spring. And over the past um, few years, we've been witnessing protests in Algeria, Iran, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon. And, and I think these protests, you know, continue to signify that there is a legitimacy crisis, a crisis of governance. And many of these states are in a situation that they can't reform without compromising their authority. So it is a very uh, delicate balancing act uh, uh, that, again, impacts ordinary citizens and, and the frustration is mounting. And, and you know, it, it seems volcanic, uh, um, in my opinion, um, how, how this issue gets addressed, again, uh, requires, you know, top uh, down investment, but also bottom up investment, investment in civil society, community building and creating mechanisms within these states uh, where governments become um, more attuned and responsive to the demands of the people. Mm. Now, getting the process moving, the process of moving towards regional security, which is essential in all kinds of ways, not least for trust building, your contributors identified the return to the JCPOA as the big stepping stone. Without that, the goal of de-escalating conflicts and moving to regional security, it's just not going to happen. You can describe it, and you do as a stepping stone, but it could also be a huge boulder, a very big obstacle. So what are the keys to getting a renewed JCPOA back in action? Sure. Well, um, I think what's important here is that our respondents uh, in our uh, survey did not see, again, because of the conditions that we've discussed um, in, in the region today, um, that a top-down regional security process could, could come to fruition. Um, there are too many barriers to that process uh, on top of that lack of um, political buy-in in the current context. So um, essentially what we're recommending is a bottom-up process that looks to break apart the myriad of conflicts and uh, uh, by breaking them apart, try and de-escalate de um, and build resolution um, in a number of areas uh, so that you have sort of stepping stones or building blocks uh, to regional security. And our respondents saw uh, a JCPOA re-entry as a foundational first step. They did not see this as the end step, but a first step, really, again, to uh, circling back to trust, uh, build back trust 
between the signatories of the JCPOA, um, uh, specifically uh, the United States and Europe and Iran, um, and um, also between the U.S. and European partners, that was also uh, you know that relationship very much fractured with the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, and to use a compliance for compliance return to the JCPOA as the beginning of what would eventually become a more for more or what the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken refers to as a longer and stronger uh, JCPOA. Uh, so, you know, this is the beginning of a process. Um, it's not the end game. And through that process, as the U.S. and Iran return to compliance, um, there's, you know, there can be incentives offered in terms of sanctions relief towards Iran. And as part of that process, um, what really needs to be included is commitment by all of the parties to have follow-on discussions on regional issues that returning to the JCPOA should not be seen as a return to the status quo ante of 2015. Yes, there is there is no going back in that sense, is there? But, I mean, how likely do you think that regional states, again, you look at this trust deficit, are, are likely to get on board because the Iranians are saying, drop the sanctions, then we'll talk. The Americans are saying, you know, you need just to come back to the table. Then we'll see about dropping the sanctions. And And, of course... The Saudis are looking at this, the Emiratis, the Israelis, all of these players looking at it. I mean, how do you get to that consensus that says, okay, we can move this thing forward, we can make this a stepping stone, the first big stepping stone? You're right to be skeptical. Um, regional states are uh, deeply concerned that a JCPOA uh, re-entry process would once again lead to the removal of uh, sanctions leverage on Iran and um, enable Iran's regional behavior as they perceive uh, what took place um, after the JCPOA was signed in 2015. But what we're recommending, again, based on the data uh, that was uh, pointed out by our respondents, is that alongside the JCPOA reentry process, uh, there needs to be a parallel track or a few parallel tracks relating to regional issues. Um, and it's in these parallel tracks, and we identify four as being uh, really critical, the Yemen war, the Syrian war, the Israeli-Palestinian process, and supporting GCC dialogue. Um, in these parallel tracks, that's where um, multilateral negotiations can and should begin over regional issues. Our findings or our interviewees um, really strongly um, uh, saw that a regional negotiation between Iran and the P5 plus one uh, wasn't going to um, result in concessions to uh, uh, Iran's regional activities in any way. And rather, they all, uh, all but a majority, very much recommended that this process of breaking apart the conflicts where Iran would sit um, in a multilateral forum alongside other actors as being uh, more supportive of uh, complementary concessions from Iran alongside other regional states. And it's in this context that regional states that have long supported a very zero-sum approach to Iran's role in the region have to consider that in many of these conflicts, um, however painful it is to admit this, Iran is, is a huge problem, but it is not the only problem. Now, you mentioned Palestine. How crucial is a fair settlement, one that works for the Palestinians? 
to the broader goal of regional security? And again, how likely is it that it can be achieved? I think it's quite crucial uh, because Iran, um, uh, as a external actor in the region, operates by taking advantage of conflicts. So um, effectively, what our findings reveal, um, and, and, and we point to it in our recommendations, is that by closing down these conflicts, resolving these conflicts, you can narrow Iran's ability to exploit internal uh, conflicts in different countries for its own political advantage. Uh, so the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, is one where Iran doesn't have huge amount of influence, but it, it is there as a thorn in the side of the Israelis. And uh, uh, Iran, though, at the same time, has taken a position that if the Palestinians reach an accommodation with Israel and that there is consensus um, for that accommodation, Iran has uh, no choice but to be supportive of that process. So by um, pushing forward to uh, a consensus building process, we see that this is a way of closing down um, Iran's ability to interfere. And it's in this, in, this, in this context that one could also maybe receive concessions from Iran Perhaps Iran would agree to uh, halt a transfer of lethal aid to Palestinian groups in exchange for security guarantees in other arenas. Um, so, you know, I think important to note is while these con- while we are suggesting that these conflicts be broken up, obviously they're all integrated in Iran's security doctrine. Uh, so incentives um, can be offered to Iran in other arenas to move things forward. That's a very interesting thought. And and I suppose the Israelis would have to make some big concessions as well, particularly with their aspirations in the West Bank. Yes, I imagine so. Um, And, you know, I have to admit, Bill, this is, you know, we recognize um, that these uh, recommendations are very ambitious. There is no denying it. And, um, it's very hard, I think, to make a case for so, so much investment um, in, in regional conflicts that seem intractable at a time, again, where uh, policymakers uh, really seem fatigued by the Middle East. But I think that, you know, over the long run, this investment by external actors and also by regional players themselves, and actually our respondents highly... Um, highly supported the the idea that regional actors have to assume responsibility for regional security as being really critical at this time. Um, simply and, and solely waiting for the United States uh, to shepherd through negotiations would uh, would not be uh, an effective strategy for the, for the region. Well, now you mentioned uh, the outside players, one of which is, of course, the United States, but there's also Russia, China to some extent. What do you see as their role in moving uh, the process to um, hopefully a positive conclusion? What role can these big powers play? Mm. It's a good question. Um, our, our data really pointed to um, the need for a concerted multilateral effort um, where external players were equally invested. That again, this shouldn't just be a, a US-led um, project, um, but 
The challenge here is uh, that um, external players, of course, have contending interests in the Middle East. Uh, China has much more of a transactional and commercial approach, um, although Chinese, China's foreign minister is currently uh, making a tour of uh, many Middle Eastern countries, including Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, the Russians have uh, much more of a regional focus, uh, you know, primarily invested in, in Syria, but also have um, been uh, instrumental in managing OPEC plus arrangements with Saudi Arabia. Um, as well, uh, they have an equally strained but pragmatic relationship with Iran at the same time. Uh, so, you know, Russia has, without a doubt, a role to play, uh, particularly in, let's say, a Syrian track, um, and that can't be neglected. Um, the Russians, of course, are invested in the JCPOA process, so, so they would be um, visible uh, there alongside the other uh, JCPOA signatories. Um, so effectively, uh, we're suggesting that uh, they all have to be there, picking up and supporting talks in areas uh, where they have interests, in areas that they have invested, in conflicts that they are directly involved in. And actually with multilateral support, um, you're sort of spreading the responsibility, spreading the risk, um, and, and, you know, perhaps have an ability to bring more players to the table under the sort of protection of uh, this multilateral uh, in investment. It will be a challenge, as I'm sure you would agree. And particularly when I think about what Vladimir Putin has accomplished, very opportunistic. He's done it uh, with relatively small engagement of resources. As you say, the Chinese uh, have a transactional approach. The Americans disengaging vacuum situation there. I mean, there are lots of very difficult and thorny issues right in that one question, I suppose. It, again, you're very right. There is almost too much going on um, to see the end game um, of a regional security framework. And, and this is why this process has to be incremental. But ultimately, for it to succeed, de-escalatory steps have to be made. Um, and of course, we see the JCPOA as, as a first very important step. But equal investment um, has to be made to uh, end the war in Yemen. And of course, the U.S. administration is um, investing towards that endgame, which is, of course, positive. The GCC states are engaging in bilateral and uh, GCC-wide dialogue. So that is a positive signal underway as well. We have to see what efforts are going to uh, be made on the Israeli-Palestinian front and on the Syrian uh, war as well. But, you know, effectively uh, dialing down these conflicts um, opens an opportunity for incremental uh, trust to be built back. If um, all parties, for example, in the Yemen war make concessions they uh, and, and demonstrate that they can live uh, to up to some of these concessions, that over time will build uh, some degree of trust. And, and that trust can lead to further conversations in another area or on uh, regional issues, uh, on, on climate issues, on um, religious tourism. There are many uh, very critical points um, uh, that regional states uh, can come together on and, and coordinate on. It's a matter of uh, finding the 
the the trust in in uh, and seeing seeing concessions from competitors and other regional actors and and then getting to the table and having uh, some of these more difficult discussions first perhaps on some of the low hanging fruit areas but eventually building up to the really critical issues of arms control maritime security um uh, and and things like that Yes, and indeed, I think it's an interesting thought that you just put that, that climate change and the issues around climate, dramatic issues really are affecting the Middle East as they are many other regions of the world. That may be something that causes uh, this sort of engagement and this incremental process uh, to begin. I hope so, um, really, because I think that the impact of climate change is being felt across the Middle East. Um, and this is, you know, one area where states and civil society can invest in more uh, collaborative outcomes. Um, and that can be a, a non-political area um, that could promote greater dialogue and understanding, but ultimately uh, lead to a more effective uh, climate policies. Mm. And as you suggest, it would be a multilateral approach. Let me finally ask you about uh, the elephant in the room, Turkey. What sort of role do you see Ankara playing? That's a very good question. So Turkey didn't feature in our work um, uh, for a variety of reasons. But of course, tangentially, Turkey is involved in a number of these regional conflicts through its relationship with uh, Doha, its uh, tensions with uh, a number of the GCC states, um, its involvement in Iraq, its uh, deep involvement in uh, the Syrian conflict, just to name a few. Turkey would no doubt have to be brought into a number of these processes. It has vested interests. It is a player, uh, a regional player. So uh, leaving Turkey out of those discussions would be unproductive. Similarly, in the same way that Iran has been uh, uh, left out of a number of multilateral discussions, it allows for states to play the role of the spoiler. Um, so we do argue that including all of the actors in um, these uh, parallel tracks is necessary to achieve compromises and um, uh, the outcomes of, of uh, conflict management and de-escalation. Sanam, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Chatham House's Sanam Vakil. Sanam's paper, co-authored with her Chatham House colleague Neil Quilliam, is titled Steps to Enable a Middle East Regional Security Process. It will be available in mid-April on the Chatham House website. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Thank you.